Well, it's a wonderful thing to be with you in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona. It's great to be out of Louisville and to see the mountains and enjoy your beautiful city and great to be here at Trinity Bible Church with so many uh, Josh and others uh, from Southern and see how the work is, uh, the Lord's blessing your work here. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to be with you this morning. I invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. Now, there's a lot in this passage, so we'll have to expeditiously work through it. But it is a glorious passage that needs to be kept together. I think that's the intent of the author, and it's good sometimes to see the the big picture of what uh, is being conveyed as the author, this anonymous author, uh, wrote to this early church uh, many years ago. I'm going to read from this section, and then we'll spend some time looking at it and thinking of the glory of the Lord Jesus. But the author says this, God's Word says in Hebrews 2, verse 5, it is not to angels that he, God, has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him... God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory... It was fitting that God, from whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, He might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Well, there is a glorious presentation of the Lord Jesus, and we'll need to ask the Lord to help us understand his word together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the gift of your Son. We rejoice that he alone is Lord and Savior. We rejoice that he meets our every need. That in him we have life and life eternal. We have the forgiveness of our sins. We have one who can help us. One who can save us. One who is complete. 
and all sufficient for us. Oh, we do pray that as we look at this rich passage from the author of Hebrews, as given to us by your Spirit, that we would see anew the glory of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, what it meant for him to become flesh incarnate, why he had to come, why he alone is the Lord and Savior that we are to renew our confidence in this day and for all eternity. We commit our time to you. Teach us about him today. Glorify him in our sight. And we ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, in your bulletin, there's just a slight change of of title, right? Uh, We will be looking at Christ and his uniqueness in the kind of age we live in. Yes, that's true. But uh, as I began to uh, reflect on this text, in some ways, I couldn't help but think about Christmas. So I entitled this uh, chapter, Christmas, or the message of the sermon, Christmas in April. Now, if you're listening to uh, or watching the Weather Channel this morning, (laughs) there's a number of portions in the upper north uh, part of the country that uh, they may be thinking they're getting Christmas again as they get showered in snowstorms and ice storms and so on, but I'm not thinking of that. I'm thinking of really the subject matter of the text. The subject matter of the text is all about Christmas. What do we celebrate at Christmas? Well, we celebrate, right, is what's on the wall here, right? John 1.14. The Word from all eternity became flesh. He came to live among us. He came to do that for a reason, in order to be our Redeemer and to save us. And that's really what this text is all about. And in fact, in the whole New Testament, there's a number of places that you could turn that succinctly and carefully describe um, and answer the question, why the incarnation? Why Christmas? Why did the Son of God from eternity take on our humanity and become flesh and live among us? But there's probably no better place than in this portion of Scripture to give an answer to that question, why God the Son became human why he came to live among us, why Christmas took place, and ultimately why ultimately Easter took place. Obviously, you can't separate the two, right? This is a glorious passage that reflects on the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God and why it happened. And So this morning, we're going to look at this passage, and really, as we think of Christmas in April, answer the question, why the Son of God from eternity became human and how that applies to us as his people. Now, as we turn to Hebrews 2, verse 5, it's important to realize that it's set within a context of a larger argument. Uh, The author of Hebrews has already begun to unpack for us from chapter 1, verse 4. So, initially, in the first three verses, as it spills over into verse 4, In some sense, the author is giving us the sort of entire thesis of the book. Uh, He's writing to uh, probably Jewish Christians. It's hard to sometimes nail these things down. But given the content of the book, he's probably writing to people who came out of a Jewish background, who have affirmed faith in Messiah, uh, that are struggling, right? Uh, These Christians probably are living in the 60s A.D., uh, probably before the fall of Jerusalem. There's no mention of the collapse of the temple and the destruction of the temple, which in the content of this book you would expect. But he's probably writing to them who are facing trials and persecutions within the Roman Empire, pressures from without, but more significantly, pressures from within. They are in danger of compromise. This whole book of Hebrews is famous for its warning passages of not only encouraging the people of God to press on in their Christian lives, but warning them that if they don't, they're in serious, serious danger, right? And the reason why he ultimately warns them and says they're in serious danger is tied to the subject matter of the book, namely the glory of Christ. Given who the Lord Jesus is and given how he has come, and he ties this to the Old Testament, given that he's come to 
be the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament, that he fulfills the prophets and the priests and the kings and the covenants and so on, there's nowhere else you can turn, right? If you depart from him, there is no salvation. There's nothing left that you can't go back to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant ultimately pointed forward to him. He's the end of the road in God's plan and purposes, and you better look to him, trust him, gain all of your encouragement from him, and never depart from him. And so through a series of comparison and contrast, this is how the book is put together, the author encourages and warns these Christians from the Old Testament. It's famous for its exposition of the Old Testament, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the fulfillment of them, that he is the one who has brought God's plan and purposes to pass that he is greater than any one or thing in the Old Testament. And from comparing him and contrasting him with first in chapter 1 and 2, angels, to then Moses in chapter 3 and Joshua in chapter 3 and 4, and eventually the main subject of matter of the book is the great priests of the Old Testament, the covenants of the Old Testament, the author warns them and encourages them, Christ is the fulfillment. Trust in him. Your faith is not in vain, even though you face trials and persecutions and suffering and potentially death. Right? He is the one who meets all of your needs. He is greater than anyone in the past. He is at the center of God's purposes. That opening verses of chapter 1 lay that out for us so beautifully. In the past, God spoke to the prophets, but in the last days, everything has come to culmination in this Son who has come and lived among us and accomplished his work and who will return and bring all things to pass. Now, chapter 2, verse 5 is in this section of a comparison and contrasting with angels. We won't go into why he discusses angels and all the debate that centers on that. Probably it's tied to chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. There's a warning passage that's inserted in the middle of his large section here of saying Christ is greater than angels. Probably the angels are identified with the Old Covenant and the giving of the Old Covenant. And the author wants to show that Christ is better than any angel and any covenant from old and so on. But regardless... He compares and contrasts Christ to these great beings, these angels, and makes the argument primarily in chapter 1, verses 4 and following to the end of chapter 1 that Christ is greater than angels because of who he is. He has a greater name. He's the Son. He has a greater honor. He has a greater rule. He's ultimately God the Son. No angel. Angels are just creatures. Angels are just ministering spirits. Angels just do the bidding of God. This is the Son from all eternity who's taken on uh, humanity, who's taken on David's role and king. He's the fulfillment of all of this, and no angel in who they are can do what the Son of God does. And then he warns them in verses 1 to 4, make sure you don't neglect him. (laughs) Don't uh, ignore such a great salvation. And then in verse 5, he resumes his argument. You can see that in verse 5. It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. So he's sort of returning to his contrast with angels. But he focuses slightly differently. It's not just the same argument made over again. A little bit simplistic, but I would say, as I said in chapter 1, Christ is greater than angels because of who he is. But then as he moves in chapter 5, or chapter 2, verses 5 to 18, he speaks of Christ as greater than angels, not only because of who he is, because ultimately of what he does. And what he does then gets tied to his entire coming to this earth, his taking on our humanity, and doing in that humanity something that no angel can do comes to redeem us. He comes to save us. And there's all through this chapter, this section here, an emphasis on the necessity of things. 
Right? You see that? He had to become. You see that in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Verse 17. For this reason, he had to become. And as the author then describes that Christ's work is a work that only he can do and no angel can do, he lays out for us at least four reasons why it was necessary. Why the Son of God had to become flesh. Why he had to come to this earth and take on our humanity in order to redeem us. And by that incarnation and work, he now does something that no angel could ever do. In fact, no human could ever do. He does that by himself alone. Now, what are the four reasons he gives as he thinks through why the Son of God became human and why this is better than angels and why this is so foundational to our only hope of salvation. Well, in verses 5 through 9, he gives the first reason by framing it in terms of a quotation. And really, the quotation here from Psalm 8 that was read earlier in the service in some sense frames the entire section. So he gives the first reason for why Christ is greater than angels, why the Son of God became man, and we can summarize in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 2, we can say this, the Son of God became human in order to restore God's creation purposes for us, for humanity. The Son of God became man, and he is the only one that can do this, in order to fulfill God's creation purposes for us, for humanity. Building on that in verses 10 to 13 is a second reason. God the Son became human in order to bring us to glory. You see that in verse 10, bringing many sons to glory. Now, they're going to be interlocking, but it's a new thought, right? So, the Son of God became man He does a work that no angel can do to restore us to our creation intent, to bring us to glory in verses 10 to 13. In verses 14 to 16, why did God the Son become man? To destroy the power of death and Satan. Apart from that incarnation and work, there's no destruction of death and Satan. And then the fourth reason, which is in some sense where the chapter will culminate and then, of course, becomes the theme of the most of the book, right? Uh, the Son of God becomes man in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest, right? And the book of Hebrews is famous for its treatment of the high priestly work of Christ. Well, let's look at these four reasons together, right? Christ is greater than angels. Why did God the Son become man? Why is his work alone able to save us? Well, he alone can restore us. He alone can bring us to glory. He alone can defeat the power of death and Satan. He alone is a merciful and faithful high priest. Those are the four reasons. Let's walk through these step by step. First, the Son of God became man in order to restore, to fulfill God's creation intention for humanity. Verses 5 through 9. Verse 5. It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. Where has he been speaking about the world to come? Well, that's chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 6. Where there's already, he's been speaking about the world to come. World to come language here is from the Old Testament prophets. World to come language, entering into this world, is a prophetic sense of, in the Old Testament, God anticipates that there will come in the future the coming of Messiah, the coming of the one who will bring God's rule and reign to this world. He will usher in the last days. He will bring the new creation. I mean, all of that's bound up in this. And the author makes very clear here, no angel brings the world to come. 
No angel brings God's rule and reign to this world. No angel does any of this, but it's only the Son of God who does this. But how does he explain then how he does it? Uh, How this has come about? Well, he frames it in terms of this quotation from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything under his feet. Putting everything under him. God left nothing that's not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, you may be asking yourself, how does this psalm actually demonstrate that Christ is greater than angels? Right? How is this psalm? Maybe it's at first sight, you begin to think, what is this psalm doing here, right? Uh, the author even doesn't even know. <laughs> they say it's David that quotes the psalm. Somewhere someone has said, and then he begins to then lay this out. But this psalm becomes very, very important. It's very important as you approach the New Testament quotation of the Old Testament that you never, ever, 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 ever think <laughs> that the New Testament authors just randomly sort of uh, pull a you know, piece of uh, paper out of a hat or something like that and say, well, let's just use that text, right? These texts are very, very carefully chosen. They are placed very, very carefully in the unfolding revelation of God. And there's a rich theology that is ultimately assumed here as this author quotes this text. And we want to just spend just a bit of time here thinking through how Psalm 8 is being used by the author of Hebrews in terms of the Old Testament. Psalm 8, in its Old Testament context, is a psalm, we can say, that looks backward to creation and in its position in the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, will pick up a forward look of anticipation. So let's first look at its backward look. As we read Psalm 8, and you can turn there or read it, you don't have to, but I'm just going to refer to it for time's sake. Psalm 8, very clearly, is a Davidic psalm. It's a creation psalm. David is writing the psalm. We don't know if he's looking up at the heavens. We don't know what he's doing. But he's obviously marveling at the created order. And as he marvels at the created order, he can't think, but he can't help but think of the creator. (laughs) Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right? And as he thinks of the majesty of God, he thinks of all that he has made, sort of like a Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and so on. He praises God because he's the creator of the universe. Right? But as he thinks of God as creator and Lord, he also marvels that he has made us humans in such a significant role. Psalm 8 is just a wonderful psalm that celebrates, reminds us of Genesis 1 and 2. The creation of humans. We live in an age that devalues human life. We live in an age that we're surrounded by all kinds of viewpoints that have no reason to value human beings. That's why we abort them. That's why we treat the elderly as poorly as we do. That's why we have the conflicts that we do and so on. But the Bible's view of humans, right? God is the creator, but he uniquely has made us incredibly significant. You must never forget that, right? Psalm 8 looks back to creation and celebrates humans' role in creation, and indeed it would go back to Adam, right? But Adam, as the representative of us and we who come from him, right? In Genesis 1 and 2, we are described as created after the image of God. No animal, no other creature is made after God's image. And we could spend a lot of time looking at what the image of God is, but at its heart, right? We were made to represent God. We were made to rule over this world. You have that sense of that in Psalm 8 as he quotes in verse 8 of chapter 2. You put everything under his feet. So in creating Adam and creating the human race, what did God make us for? He made us first for himself. He made us first to be in covenant relationship with him. 
He enters into rest after his creation, the enjoyment of that world, and he made us to be his kings and queens. He made us to rule. He made us to put things under our feet. He made us to explore the vastness of this universe. I think if you look back in Genesis 2, right, Adam is put in this garden, in this sort of temple sanctuary. And what was his task He was to take that garden and expand its borders to the uttermost parts of the earth, to God's glory and stewardship, and you see work, and you see marriage, and you see all of these things there. Humans were created great. We, unlike any angel, right? Angels don't rule over the world. Angels simply do God's bidding, but you and I are made And that's what Psalm 8 looks back to. But we also know from Genesis 3 that you and I were made great. We were made to put everything under our feet. Something happened. Something desperately happened, right? Sin entered the world through Adam. Instead of putting everything under our feet... There was a curse that was placed on us. We were cut off from God. We were at each other's throats. <laughs> there was a curse placed upon creation. Instead of ruling, ultimately, and we, you know, image bearing, we still do science and all these things and rule, but ultimately, we don't put things under our feet, but eventually the earth puts us under its feet. Puts us six feet under. Death. Sin leading to death and destruction and so on. God made us to rule, but it's as if in Genesis 3, the very purpose of our creation is lost. We don't rule. Death has entered this world. We ultimately are cut off from God. We don't fulfill the purpose of our creation. And that is why Psalm 8 is also looking forward. Genesis 3 reminds us that sin has entered the world. We do not fulfill the purpose of our creation, but also tied to Genesis 3 is an initial promise. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us to ourselves. Remember that premise in Genesis 3.15 where God says that through the human race, right, through a seed of the woman, will come one who will defeat the offspring, Satan, who will crush his head. That initial promise holds out hope that sin doesn't have the last word, death doesn't have the last word. And we then, as we walk through the Old Testament, begin to look for how God is going to fulfill that promise And indeed, when Psalm 8 is still later in Scripture, still holding out creation hope, still reminding us that our very purpose in creation will not ultimately be lost, it then, tied to the entire promises of God, looks forward to ultimately one who will be a son of man, who will come in our nature who will then undo the works of the evil one, who will defeat sin, defeat death, and restore us. Now, I've added a little bit in there, but I think that is what the author of Hebrews reflects on. Look at what he then says in verse 8b, or the second half of verse 8 in chapter 2. In quoting Psalm 8, he speaks of humans ruling... But then he makes commentary, and the commentary is not only reflecting on our role in creation, but the loss of it in terms of the fall. Notice what he says here in verse 8b, in putting everything under him. Now, it is important to get the hymn right. The hymn here is, I think, the hymn that's mentioned in Psalm 8. That's the context here. Well, who's the hymn of Psalm 8? The him is Adam, it's us, it's humans, right? So another way of saying this, in putting everything under humans, under Adam and the image bearers, God left nothing that is subject to Adam, to subject to the human race. 
He's just reminding us of our role in creation. Yet, this is where now he's already bringing in the fall. Genesis 3. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him, to us. See what the author's doing here. I sort of filled in the gaps for you. But what the author is doing is he's reading the Old Testament very carefully. He's looking at Psalm 8. Davidic psalm that looks back to our role in creation, but he's also saying here, don't forget that there's been sin that's entered the world. There's been death that's entered the world. There's been the loss of putting everything under our feet. We do not rule as we ought, but God promised that we would. In fact, given that Psalm 8 is put way later in the Bible, it's still holding out hope that there would be one who would come, tied to Genesis 3.15, from the human race, who would save us. And that's the point of what he is saying here in verse 9. Humans have lost that rule and role, yet in verse 9 we see, but we see Jesus. Who, and now this gives the reason for his incarnation, And ultimately, why he's greater than angels. We see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. So lower than the angels would be speaking of his incarnation. Crowned with glory and honor is the glory and honor that is referred to in Psalm 8. God crowned us in creation with glory and honor. But now this Jesus, who becomes human is crowned with glory and honor, so that by doing that, he now suffers death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, he's going to go on further as we move to the second point here, but in some sense, what the author is doing in his argument by using Psalm 8 and tying it to the entire story of the Old Testament, he's really putting your whole Bible together here in some sense, right? Why is Jesus greater than angels? Because Jesus is the only one, right, as the Son of God who takes on our humanity, who can do something no angel can do. No angel is an image bearer. No angel can restore what was lost in Adam. This one who comes from the human race by becoming incarnate is the one who now is able to restore us by his incarnation, his life, his death supremely, and thus bring us back to the very purpose of our creation. Now, he's going to speak of that more in verses 10 and so on, bringing many sons to glory. But this is a glorious way of viewing our salvation. Why has the Son of God come? Because there's no other way for you and I to be brought back to the very purpose of why God made us in the first place. Think of ultimately now the salvation we receive. The salvation we receive is, we can describe in terms of being made right with God, and that's crucial. Our sins are forgiven, uh, our debt is paid, we are brought right back to God, but also we were brought right with God for a purpose. We're brought right with God to rule again, to be brought back to why God has made us in the future. That's why ultimately in the new heavens and new earth, we won't be floating on clouds. Uh, we won't be singing on the harps in the, in the clouds and sort of, you know, uh, be ethereal spirits. Spirits, no, we'll live in a new heavens and new earth. And what will we be restored to? We will be restored in resurrection bodies to rule and to reign and to be in relationship to the triune God. That's what salvation is, and that's what's been brought back, and that's what the Son of God has done for us, right? I wonder how you think of salvation, right? Sometimes we think of it a little narrowly. We need to think of it broader, right? We need to think of it in terms of our relationship with God, the purpose of our creation, the value and dignity we have as human beings, and all of that is now made possible because the Son of God took on human flesh, lived our life, died our death, and thus restored us, right? Now, in verse 10 through 13, in some sense, he's building on this. He gives us the second reason, and it's, I said, interlocking uh, with the first one. Why did the Son of God come? Well, to restore the very purpose of our creation. Verse 10 is building on this. He says, in bringing many sons to glory, 
It was fitting that God, from whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are holy are of the same family. Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then you have a number of Old Testament quotations that shows the family linkage of Jesus and his people. Quotation from Psalm 22, I will declare your name in the brothers, the presence of the congregation. Uh, verse 13, Isaiah 8, I will put my trust in him. Here I am, the children God has given me. Right? This, in some sense, we say here, here's a second reason of why the Son of God became man. To bring us back to glory. What's building off of the first one? What's glory refer to here in verse 10? We often think of glory, I think, as heaven. Right? He's bringing many sons to heaven. Well, that's true. But the glory here is really the glory of Psalm 8. God in creation crowned us with glory. He crowned us as rulers over his world, right? So in verse 10, why is the Son of God come? Well, in fulfillment of Psalm 8, he's come to bring us back to that purpose of glory, that purpose of creation. But notice how he does this. He does this as the author. Now, our English translation here of author doesn't fully capture right? uh, sort of the the underlying Greek underneath it, right? There's really almost two ideas. You think of author as the writing of a script or something like that. But here, author, the word underneath this has two ideas to it that are very, very important. Uh, Author, or the word underneath this, speaks of one who is a champion, a victor. It also conveys the idea of of a trailblazer, a pioneer, the one who goes first and blazes the trail so that he opens it up so that we can come in his wake. Now that's the idea here, so that the Son of God became man to bring us to glory, to bring us back to the purpose of our creation, and he does that as the victor. By taking on our humanity, he wins for us what we can't win. He does for us what we cannot do, and he then becomes the one who opens up the new creation. He's the trailblazer, right? Adam was the first man of the old creation. He brought sin and death into the world. What did Jesus do in the incarnation and his work? He becomes the first man of the new creation. He's the one that can undo that first man's work. And How does he do it? Taking on our humanity. This is really here, the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing that the Apostle Paul says elsewhere. Here is the last Adam. Here is the one who fulfills Adam's role. Here is why he's greater than angels. No angel, again, is an image bearer. No angel takes on our humanity. No angel can redeem us. But this son can take on our humanity to bring us back to the purpose of our creation and to bring sonship. Did you notice that in verse 10? He brings many sons to glory. This is adoption themes. Sonship in Scripture is also tied to us as image bearers. It's another way of saying that the Son of God from eternity becomes Son to make us restored to our sonship. And apart from that, there is no hope for us, right? And then becoming human, he also identifies with us as a family, And the amazing thing that we see here in verse 11, right, speaks of our his identification with us, the one who makes us holy, those who are made holy are of the same family, and that's again tied to his incarnation and his work, but this one, he's not ashamed to call us his family. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? In our sin, he has every right to be ashamed of us. The Son of God took on our humanity. He became our elder brother. He became the last Adam. He became the victor, the trailblazer. He did a work that no angel can do to restore us, and then he makes us. He identifies with us as image bearers, taking on our image so that we're part of the fame family, and he even sings our praises as he brings his people to ultimate salvation. It's a glorious picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and this son who's loved us and given himself for us and makes us part of his family and identifies with us. 
But then he goes on even further in verses 14 to 16 to not only speak of being restored to the purpose of our creation and sonship and glory and so on, but of course, if he's going to do that, he has to deal with both sin and death, doesn't he? And he also has to deal with the tyrant who holds death over our heads, right? So verse 14 through 16, since the children have flesh and blood, right? There's, we have flesh and blood. We are human. We are image bearers. So he has to share in that humanity, right? Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shares in their humanity so that, right, by incarnation to death, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. It's not angels he helps. But Abraham's descendants, believers, those who trust, those who are true children of Abraham by faith. That's the ones he helps. Well, here we have a picture of the reason why the Son of God comes. Because he must come and undo Adam's work by defeating death. By defeating him who holds the power of death over us. In Scripture, there's a tight, 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 tight connection between sin and death, right? You have that in Genesis 2. God says, if you disobey, you'll die. You have in Romans 6, 23, the wages, the penalty of sin is death. Death is an abnormality to this universe. We were made to live. We were made to be in right relation to God. We were made to be as creatures who rule. But in our disobedience, death enters this world. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. And the devil, the devil's just a creature, but the devil has power over us because he's like a tyrant. He keeps hanging this over our head. He keeps reminding us that you're a sinner before God and that you die. And he has that power of this age. We need one to crush the head of that serpent to defeat death by defeating sin. And that's what's being described here. It's sort of an almost ironic statement. But if we know the the link between sin and death, we can make perfect sense of it. right? When he says here that by his death, he destroys death, that almost seems strange. Take it out to your neighbor and say, by death you destroy death. And you think, I thought by death that's the end. No, not this death. Because this death, given the link between sin and death, this death is the death that deals with sin. And in dealing with sin first before God, and then all of its ramifications, death no longer holds its power. That's why resurrection takes place, right? You think of it, the cross, that through that cross, he died. He died for us, on behalf of our sin, but that grave could no longer hold him. That resurrection morn, right? The very fact that sin had been dealt with in full means he is brought to new life, and he is the resurrection in the life, and he holds the power of death and Hades, and that all resurrection goes through him. And the power of the evil one has been defeated. This is an encouragement to us. Think of this early church who was facing trials and persecution, suffering, and even the facing of death. The author of Hebrews is reminding them that even if they suffer to death, even if the Roman Empire puts them to death, that death in Christ has already been dealt with, that they will be raised that the evil one and his power has been broken, and that Christ is the victor who is now restoring them to the very purpose of their creation. No angel does this. There's no salvation for angels. There's no angel that can redeem us. It's only this one who can do so. And then the last area here is, as he moves to almost a culmination, Right? He is restoring us. He is making us part of his family. He is identified with us because we have flesh and blood to destroy the evil one, sin and death. And all of this sort of culminates in verse 17 and 18. The Son of God became man to become our high priest. And of course, the high priestly imagery here is what he develops through the rest of the book. Right? The role of the high priest 
Hebrews 5.1 is a great, great summary of what a high priest is. The high priest, right, is the one who came from the people, right? Hebrews 5.1, every high priest is selected from among men. In the Old Covenant, it was coming out of the nation of Israel. But here, the Son of God takes on our humanity, so he comes as last Adam, so he can bring Jew, Gentile together. He takes on our humanity from us, so that he is able to represent us in matters related to sin and sacrifices for sins. That's what this high priest does. This high priest not only comes to defeat the evil one, but the defeating of the evil one must first deal with sin. And that's what the emphasis is here. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers. He had to be made like us. He had to take on our humanity in every way so that he could defeat sin. He could become a merciful high priest. Now, in his high priestly work, he's not offering a lamb outside of him. He's offering himself. And by offering himself, he makes propitiation for our sins. He satisfies God's righteous demand because of who he is as the son. And he now defeats death, defeats sin, brings us back. All of these together are giving us how we are restored, how salvation comes to us. And even the description of him, he doesn't come to do this in a way that is apart from his love for us. You have that, I think, sense in verse 17, he had to be made like us in order to become a merciful high priest. What's mercy? Well, mercy is like grace. It's not quite the same, but grace, you know, he does this because we don't deserve it. But mercy is a kind of attitude. For God to show mercy, for Christ to show mercy on us, means he acts in pity towards us. The Son of God has come to save us because he loves us, we are a pitiful people, and he ultimately reaches out in pity that leads to a solution. You know, we can be people who identify with others in their trials and difficulties and show mercy on them, but often we can't help them. But this one here can help. This one here can do something. This one here has an attitude of showing love and pity. He shows pity towards us that are just rebels of him. And really, this gets tied into grace. He acts in grace to save us, and he does so as a faithful high priest. That faithful high priest picks up how he approached his work, how he went about his life. He went about his life desirous to do his Father's will to save us. He was faithful from the very moment of his ministry on. I mean, even before then, but at the moment of his ministry, he faced temptations. He lived his life out of love for his Father and obedience to his Father's will and to save us. He did not turn back from the task of the Garden of Gethsemane, from turning back, but he says, your will be done. And he goes to the cross in faithfulness and in obedience and in service to save us. That's the kind of high priest we have. One who identifies with us, who can do something for us, and who can restore us. And he then describes beautifully in verse 18 that gets picked up in chapter 4. Because he himself suffered when he is tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here we have this picture of this son who now shows pity on us, who faithfully carries out his ministry and his mission for us, who then is able by his taking on our flesh and by living his life and dying for us and securing our salvation, able to help us. We face all kinds of trials, don't we? We face all kinds of difficulties in this fallen, corrupt, abnormal world. We face it ourselves, individually, with others. We often wonder, where do we turn? (laughs) Who can understand? Who can help me? Now, this passage says there's one person we know for sure, right? As the body of Christ, we need to help one another. But there's one person who ultimately can know what you're going through, who can identify with suffering, who identify, but not just identify in a kind of sympathetic, empathetic way, 
but who can help, who can do something, who saves, who's victorious, who brings God's rule and reign and brings salvation and can ultimately bring us to glory, right? That's the Son of God who's loved us and given himself for us. No wonder, right? The author of Hebrews says he's greater than angels. No angel cares for us this way. No angel can save us in this way. It's only the Son of God from eternity who comes and takes on our humanity, who lives our life, dies our death, is raised for our justification, who brings the new world to pass, and who will guarantee that we will be brought to glory that can meet our need. This church in the first century faced pressures of persecution. How do you face persecution? How do you, you know, maybe in the time of Nero, you know, as Christians were lit on lampposts, how do you face that? Because you know the Son of God has loved you. You know the Son of God has saved you. You know the Son of God has come into this world, and He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and nothing can fail. He has secured all that's necessary to bring ultimate salvation. He will come again. That's what grounds. This is what presses them on. How do you get out of lethargy of your spiritual life? You just sort of want to, you look to him. You say, there's a reason to live. He has done this for me. He is my helper. He is my strength. He is the one who can save me. And he alone understands what I'm going through. The Lord Jesus Christ, a sympathetic, merciful, faithful high priest, who's the son of God who saves in power and might. Well, that's the glorious savior we have, right? And if you are in Christ, oh, there's encouragement here. There's glory here. There's worship here. There's, there's a reason to get up tomorrow and live your life, right? There's a reason to face the challenges of this world and to know he is on the throne and he will complete the task, right? But outside of Christ, right, I mean, the author of Hebrews warns these Christians, but I mean, he warns also those who hear the gospel, right? If you think you can find salvation outside of this one, you're dreaming, No angel can save you. No human can save you. Before the God of Scripture, there's only one person who can save you. That's God the Son. There's only one who can meet your need. There's only one who can identify with you. There's only one who takes sin and defeats it and defeats the power of death and the devil. It's only one. But thank God there's one, right? And there's a glorious Savior that we can love and adore and make known and live for. Oh, may you... Trust in him today. May you be renewed in your confidence in him today. May he be that which you live for and love and adore all the days of your life and for all eternity. There's a glorious future ahead. This life is so short, but there's a glorious future of all eternity with the Son of God who's loved us.